Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host for today, Camille Dupont. This week we'll be talking to Northern Irish multi-award winning filmmaker Alison Miller about what it takes to be a journalist, a working class woman and determined to get to the truth with topics spanning from issue of safety to the very real consequences of losing local media outlets. We also explore curiosity and honesty in journalism, duty of care and reporting with sensitivity in filming difficult subjects. Throughout the conversation, you will hear Alison refer to Lyra McKee, her friend and award-winning investigative journalist who was shot dead while reporting on a riot in Derry in 2019. Alison took on the weighty task of putting together a documentary about the life and death of her friend. Simply entitled Lyra, the film was released in spring 2023 and has received critical acclaim and international awards. This conversation will definitely help you understand how this filmmaker creates such compelling work. That's all coming up, so don't go anywhere. Hi Alison and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you for having me. A little known fact about you is about farming and pigs. I can't wait for you to tell us more. Well, I, I'm not from a very big media background. My family didn't work in um, newspapers or television. And my dad was a pig farmer and I grew up in a rural small place called Cullyback in the middle of nowhere near Ballymena in the middle of Northern Ireland. So I guess I was a curious child. So I guess the one thing it did teach me was to listen to stories of, you know, of the characters that came into my dad's yard and, and also look at the landscape and really it was at the height of the troubles and it did it's quite an interesting um experience to have you know land rovers and army in the middle of the country stopping you in the middle of the night so i guess i learned a lot from that but i learned most of all to work really hard and um so i guess i got went to the national films and television school and moved to england in the early 90s but certainly my background was farming <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about the place of women in journalism in Northern Ireland and the evolution over the past decades. Um, a recent survey by Reach and Women in Journalism found that 75% of the participants to that survey have experienced threats to safety in person or online during the course of their work. And almost 50% said they didn't promote their work online as a consequence of that. I'd like to have your take on this. Well, it's kind of interesting because I suppose if you look back through the archive, we've had a lot, it's 25 years of the signing of the peace agreement, but if you look back even further to the reporting of the conflict and the troubles, whatever it's called here, it's you look at the footage, it's very male. And that was, there were incredible women working here too, but it's the representation on those reports are very male. And I think it's kind of interesting that that is changing, but also... You know, we've had some recent stuff here. There's been a terrible case with the journalist Patricia Devlin, who's incredible. She had horrific threats, really horrible horrible threats because she was covering some stories in quite tough areas. She had threats against herself and her children. And they were taken to the police and the police didn't follow through with that. And I think that's terribly worrying. And it's, it's caused great stress, obviously, for Patricia and made many other people fear 
uh, when covering stories, particularly in paramilitary areas here in Northern Ireland, where there still are drug issues. And obviously, you know, there's violence in some of these communities, and a lot of fear. Um, I think that's not good. I really hope things start to change. But then you see the problem is then that it steers you away from dealing with some of those hard stories. People are frightened that they're going to get threatened or intimidated. And I think, you know, I hope that we, I mean, the NUJ here have been incredible at supporting people. I just think it's a very big disappointment. The police did not take that further with Patricia's case. And I think Amnesty were involved too. It's a, it's, it's a worry. Statistics are pretty terrifying. Reporters Sans Frontières also recently published their latest index. And although the UK is still classed as satisfactory, it's also down two places. And one thing that is very clear is the volatility of the yearly ranking, showing how quickly situations can change. I'm wondering whether that's even more true in Northern Ireland. Well, I think so. I mean, I, I worry that could get worse. Um, I would like to think it'd get better, but I do worry. And especially, you know, we've got lots of battles with immigration issues and stuff north and south of the island. And there's really important stories of vulnerable people who are who need support and their stories need to be told. And if you're frightened because of various gangs or, you know, or of God forbid, some kind of shooting, the certainly the shooting of the police officer who um, recently here was was horrendous. But if you're worried about that, how do we how do we get those stories out there? So we need to really think with it, think about it and deal with about it. And how do we how do we carry on with that? It is it is a worry. Obviously, people link a lot of that back to Lyra being killed in Derry on the Craigan. But um, I mean, that night she, I, she was not targeted. It was a, a gun brought out into the crowd that night, that riot. But yet she was there and she started to cover it and, you know, send back images to some of her colleagues uh, about what happened before she was killed. So, you know, there is what was a gun doing in the streets and that is very worrying that since 2019 to now I mean there's guns in the streets here and you could say yes London there's knives there's guns I mean I'm not saying that we're different to other cities but this whole paramilitary level of stuff that can blow up really quickly overnight over with a lack of government here it's you know it's it's a vacuum we're in a vacuum over here so yeah I think all these things are really worrying. And you said to Variety in an interview last year that watching the footage of the funeral, of, of Lyra's funeral, compared to the vacuum situation that you're, you're talking about now, made you feel really angry. I was wondering if you, if you think that the type of journalism that you're doing is, is able to bring about change in situations such as this one. Absolutely, completely. It's it's absolutely the way forward. If we don't tell those stories and we don't get that tr- the truth out there, and I think that really good journal. I mean, there's there's a bursary set up for Leo now with the Centre for Investigative Journalism, and there's some other places are doing bursaries in her name. But it's wonderful because there's a sort of practice and a skill attached to that type of work where she was digging, she was FOIing, she was working really hard left, right, centre, behind her, in front of her, cross-checking information, really trying to get uh, to the bottom of the heart of the story and find the truth and tell the truth every single time. And I think that, you know, 
it, what makes me angry, obviously, is that she's not here to carry on that work because it was so crucial. You know, LGBTQ plus young women, where she represented, sorry, communities from that, she gave them a voice. But she was, uh, she was of now a time when we need more than ever uh, young people to be knocking on doors, being inquisitive and saying, I want some answers. I want to know why. Her biggest as her mum always said from the minute she was born, was, I want to know why, I want to know why, I want to know why. Isn't that at the heart of what we do, all of us? We want to know why. We want to know why. Please tell us why. We want some answers. And we need to keep knocking on doors and asking why And Northern Ireland needs. And there are wonderful young people coming through. There are, but, you know, it's about support, getting the money to, to keep knocking, knocking on doors. Impunity is a worrying trend in Northern Ireland, with two key examples of journalists who have been shot dead in peacetime. Two men have only just faced trial for the killing of Lyra McKee in January of this year, four years after her murder. There is also Northern Irish journalist Martin O'Hagan, who was murdered in 2001. His killers have never been convicted. In fact, his family are suing the MOD and domestic police for not acting on intelligence to prevent his death. You can imagine that death threats made to journalists carry a very real, you'll be next type of message. So when Patricia Devlin received direct threats to herself and rape threats to her newborn son, it is deeply concerning that more action hasn't been taken from local authorities. It is a sign that the system is failing to protect women journalists especially and press freedom more broadly. Alison hopes things will improve, but worries that important stories will be dropped due to intimidation, threats against journalists and their families. What also causes important stories to fall by the wayside is the decline of local media. In recent years, BBC Northern Ireland has seen big job cuts and a 150-year-old community paper closed down. It has a big knock-on effect on stories told and who gets to break into journalism. I mean, Lyra always certainly, and as do I, you look around you for stories, you want to report and see what's happening around you. And if there isn't reporting in the heart of a community, she wrote a lot about suicide and intergenerational trauma way before it was kind of talked about. But if you can't report on what you're seeing around you, you know, and get those stories out there, how do you deal with what's happened? It just gets shut down. And instead we get enormous organisations coming in like superpowers, shutting down the locals and Taking a, taking a generic take on what they think is real. That's not what's really happening. So the importance of local community reporting, local community newspapers, local radio, I think is through the roof. And I, it makes me very angry and very worried that these stations are being shut down um, because really they don't cost as much as a, a BBC refurbishment. And if they're going to refurb, certainly here in Belfast, they're refurbing some building. Who cares? Keep the radio stations so open. Just, just... There's plenty of desks out there you can get secondhand. Stop worrying about it. We want the stories. We want the work. We want people to be happy represented. We want the truth of what's happening in communities to be told. And that also highlights the lack of representation of the working class in, in the media. Well, <clears throat> I think, you know, speaking like I'm a farmer's daughter from rural Northern Ireland, Leah grew up in a single parent family in the heart of Ardoin. And you know, in a working class community. And I suppose I use her as an example. I mean, because I, I think it was something she really 
for for me, we had so much in common in the sense that we really believed in finding people, you know, from whatever background, just listening to their stories. But she um, would always say, you know, yeah, I've written to blah, blah, blah. And they said, come to London and do a placement. And she'd say, well, great. How do I do a placement? Live on, you know, a small amount of money I'm making in the most expensive city in the world. It's going to take me like six years to even pay, save up for the rent to get the placement. And I haven't got a mummy and daddy's buy me a flat in central London. So she used to say, you know, it really is a problem that there's not enough representation from working class backgrounds and opportunities. And I know that there's certainly there's certain grants in place. People are really trying to change that, their organisations. But the point of view she's bringing, or maybe me as a rural farmer is bringing, I mean, how, how do we, we need to know how we can fight and get through to, to get our voices heard. And she she really did. I mean, she came from that background with nothing and ended up with a two-book deal with Faber. And Faber, she always used to say, brick walls aren't there to keep you out. They're there to see how badly you want it. And I certainly have that on my wall every day and think about it too. I was wondering how you handle being so close to the subject that you're covering in your documentaries. Of Obviously, in, in your latest documentary, you, you cover the tragedy of your friend Lyra, but also in all the documentaries you've you've lived with some of them or you've spent you spend a great deal of time with them. I'd like you to tell me more about about that approach. Um well I never expected to make the my film about Lyra because obviously I just didn't know what was gonna happen. So I ended up in that one with her sister and her partner Sarah it was kind of, we all decided to make it, and her mom, God rest her, we all decided to make it together, mainly because we wanted her, we didn't want her murder to silence her her work in a way, finding her voice and find her written word was to make sure that we, we're going to make sure we kept her, her what she was talking about in her work alive. Um, that was particularly hard and challenging so taking out that one out of the equation which is not usual I suppose my work is kind of uh, different in the sense I really believe that I went to the National Film School as I said trained as a filmmaker then observational filmmaking and I always say that the minute that someone opens their door and invites you into their house there's a moment where there's a relationship begins and there's a lot of respect and honesty that's needed from day one and I think you need to be, there should be no surprises. You need to say straight away why you're there and make a relationship with that person. You may not agree with their politics. You may not agree with what they're doing. But you need to be honest and say, I find what you say quite challenging or can we unpick it? But if you don't have those difficult conversations with people, how do we understand or try to look at how people are living their lives? But I think that honesty is incredibly important to me and that duty of care that, you minute you say that you 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 stand by your word, and if you say, I mean, I I show everyone films when I've made them. I show them the rough cuts. I talk about them. I often show them scenes as I'm making them because, you know, I'm telling your story. So I'd like to know. Often, you know, is this? Um, you know, I'm trying to f- understand where you're, what you're seeing, and walk in your shoes in a way. But I need to be really clear, as clear as I can. Uh, with the subject of the person I'm filming from the beginning. And I believe then that means that you go on a journey and even if the journey's rough and tough and places and challenging, you're on it together and there's there aren't any surprises. So when you get to the end of that journey, you have a film that you've made because you've both lived it and experienced it. So 
Yeah, so it's always been quite interesting because I do get incredibly close to people. I feel I'm still in touch with every single one, maybe apart from one or two people I just have lost touch. But I mean, pretty much over 30 years since film school, I'm in touch with practically everyone I've ever filmed. I really enjoy the fact that we've been in a journey and told a story and we have something together at the end, a film that we've made. And it's been made with, I believe you've got to be incredibly honest. And even if it's been commissioned by a commissioner, a, a channel or something, if it's not going the way that it was on the piece of paper, be really honest and say, look, I need to tell you, this story's gone way off the cliff. This has gone somewhere else. Don't fabricate, just tell the truth. And I believe often it makes a much more compelling. So because life isn't straightforward. I've been on darts teams on the Shankle Road. I've been with marching bands. I've lived with a priest in Dublin. I've been I've been in Alaska uh, following a murder trial. You know, I'm now at the minute about to start filming some rappers in Virginia. I mean, you know, the worlds that, it, that stories take you into are very, you learn a lot about yourself. I find it a very reflective process. You learn from, by listening to other people and you think, you know something, they really forgave someone for that. Isn't that amazing? I'm often bowled over by uh, a lot of good out there. And even though the stories are really hard, horrendous, like I've done films about abuse, I've done films about rape crisis centres, I've done all sorts of stuff, but you, some of the people you meet along the way are so incredible that they often shape and help you readjust, your, recheck yourself about how you're thinking about life. And I think that's kind of the mad pattern of making films that makes it so addictive and telling stories that makes it so important because sometimes no one has listened to that person before or no one believed them. Often, like we, I made a film with Dara McIntyre about, um, first we won a BAFTA for it, about the cover-up of abuse in the Catholic Church and it was based at the beginning in Donegal and there was a small place there where people didn't feel they could speak because they didn't think they'd be believed. And I think that that was a huge moment for us whenever they agreed to talk and they were believed and there was a lot of healing in that community. So, I mean, you can change things by allowing people a chance to change things. Yeah, it's about being honest, giving them a reflection maybe of what we don't want to see. Yeah, just look at it, re, re-examine something. You think it's it's there but actually maybe you just missed it because we do live hectic lives and sometimes when you pull back you know the covers of something yeah sometimes there's stuff that isn't very nice but perhaps we need to deal with that we need to face it you know face that's actually a really good segue into my next question which is looking back at your previous work and uh, specifically at the work you did around Father Michael Cleary, who was an Irish Catholic priest, and you'd spent some time with him as a as a film student and had made a, a documentary about his life and, and his work, and you realised you, you got it wrong later. I'm wondering where you learned from that. Well, well... F- um, I was at the National Film School and it was 93 and I was asked to make a short film, my second year project. And I, I read about this priest in Kilburn. He was a singing priest who'd sold more records than you two at the time. And I thought, why is he a singing priest from Ireland? This is bizarre. So I went to meet him and he was like, yeah, of course you can come and film my life. No problem, no problem, whatever. So I went to Dublin, moved in with them and myself and my colleague Sarah started filming and he had this housekeeper called Phyllis, God rest her, and son, 
and they all lived in the house and I thought this was quite you know the story was that this housekeeper had a child and it was her son and you know they were living there it was a big house and they were you know great and it, the penny didn't drop at all that when he died then in 93 so I made this little film and it's kind of bonkers but the singing priest and whatever and the son was in it a bit and when he died in 93 um uh, the story was in every paper around, I mean, Ireland. It was the shock of Ireland that this celebrity singing priest who delivered the mass when the Pope was in Ireland had the secret housekeeper lover and the secret son. Anyway, then I hid the film in my parents' attic because every news person on the planet wanted the material. And I thought, well, hang on, I, I don't really feel comfortable with this. I'm not going to explore. I just feel that there's a lot of rawness here. So about 2008, I went back. I moved to London, worked away. Doesn't it? My parents were selling their farm, and they said, well, "There's all these old tins in the attic. Do you want them?" And I went, oh, "That's Father Cleary." So I started going through it all, and then I saw really obviously everything that I'd missed. So I went back and I found his son, and I said to him, "Do you want to make a film about what happened?" And he went, "Yeah." So once he said yes, we went on a mission. It was a story for the BBC Story Film, made it for RT and BBC, and. It was um incredible journey for both of us through this crazy story that was actually really also quite heartbreaking. It said a lot about old Ireland and the transformation when church and state crumbled and New Ireland. Um, but yeah, I had I just thought the best thing to admit in the film straight up is I lived with this guy in '93 in the house and he was great. And guess what? He died and I got it wrong. I missed it because. I wasn't the only one, the whole of Ireland kind of missed it, but I was in the house. But, but you know, I think being honest is the way forward because the audiences, they're there. They're, why why not tell the truth to your audience? Life's complicated. Why dress up? I think you dress things up and fake them. People smell a rat. They go, that is rubbish. So just tell the truth. Say, hey, I live with this guy. It was a bonkers experience. And guess what? I didn't notice either that the housekeeper was his lover and I didn't know that was the son. I missed it. So I just thought, might as well get it out there. So, but it was, um, it's an incredible story that I was privileged to tell because of the, I believe just being honest with people saying, look, I'm back. I never sold the material. I didn't do anything with it. I came back now because some time's passed. So maybe we can, the dust settled. Let's carefully analyze what's left. And I think that's um, great because time is precious to Time to investigate, time to examine stuff, time, but time is money. We have to survive, but time is precious. When we have time to tell our stories, we can really look at the front, the back, the side, reanalyze, FOI, do stuff. But time, whenever you're really broke, is hard. So, but time to really interrogate and really investigate and really find out what really happened is precious. And to finish, we've mentioned honesty, we've mentioned not giving up, asking why. I just wanted to know what what would be your words of wisdom? I think there's a few things. I think being curious is a good start because when you read something in the small print, it may not be the front page, but you might read something and think, that's really interesting. Why did that happen? And if, if you're curious, it often starts something quite interesting. And maybe you're curious about your remarkable grandmother, uh, an inspirational figure in your life, you know, uh, that you think, well, they might make a really good film. You've got a mobile, maybe you should interview your grandma on your mobile and say, 
So this happened, you lived through this period of time. It's a small but really important moment. And I think never put yourself down. I think surround yourself. If you're quite an anxious person, Leo and I were both very anxious, but we helped each other. If you're anxious and you're always pulling yourself apart because you're beating yourself up that maybe it's not good enough, surround yourself by people who see do you know what? You're really good and don't doubt it and keep following your dreams and believe in yourself and don't let people pull you down because unfortunately our business is full of a lot of really tough, kind of brutal, you know, we come up against that, I should say, brutal situations. And I think, you know, you know, Lyra's phrase about brick walls are meant that it's see not to keep you out, but see how badly you want it. And you know, we've got to be more like Rocky, keep on fighting. She had so many of them that I love because that is it. And the days that are hard, you need to go for a walk. Don't beat yourself up about the days that are hard when your story's not quite working or you feel down. Things about finding someone to say, come on, you know, what about this? And I think the curious thing is, you might be in a coffee shop because you're having a bad day and you meet someone kind of amazing and you go, I can't believe that. So you came from Afghanistan and you're here and you've got the story. Oh my, it doesn't matter. It's about being curious and talking to people. And I always believe in walking the streets and talking to people. I don't believe in Google and I like to get out there, look around you. Often there's a great, great story at the end of your street. Often it's just there in front of you. So, Thank you so much, Alison. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really honoured. Thank you so much. What struck me in our conversation is the curiosity and determination to truly listen and uncover stories in their communities that Alison, like her friend Lyra, have demonstrated. But it takes time to produce such work, which is often a luxury in our field. The concept of observational filmmaking seems to be such a great place to start for all media professionals, even beyond filmmaking. It has certainly served Alison well with a BAFTA and many international awards to her name. In a world where polarised views seem the loudest, being able to bring nuance to complex stories about communities that may be distrustful of the media and listening to them with respect, especially if your views are total opposite, may seem like a tour de force, but it is vital. Whatever the subject, whatever the media, these are the skills all journalists should lean into. I'd like to leave you with one of Lyra McKee's favourite quotes. Brick walls aren't there to keep you out. They're there to see how badly you want it. What did you take from today? I'd love to know what you learned from this conversation. Get in touch. I'm on Twitter, on at You can check out all our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Camille Dupont. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.